here's the interesting truth, right? The internet is propped up on advertising. And the incentivization of companies leaning towards privacy, Facebook doesn't want this. Apple made a decision. Google's making one like kind next year that is to the sake of consumer privacy. What is going to happen, I think, is a lot of the old stuff in advertising will become new again, meaning Meta has to at some point start creating relief in CPMs. Had an amazing conversation today with Evan Pudgett. 20 years experiencing e-commerce and advertising. Crazy wealth of knowledge. This guy was wonderful to talk to. We had an extensive conversation about the history of advertising, how subscription services started, began, developed, and where they are heading in the future. And he has a wonderful and interesting backstory, which I hope you enjoy. So yeah, welcome, Evan. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. I know that you're a, an incredible expert when it comes to advertising, more than 20 years experience in this space. And I also know that you have quite an interesting backstory. You met like an old high school friend, and then that somewhat led you to where you are now. Can you tell us tell us your yeah. backstory? Yeah. So, you know, going back to the 90s, uh, the, the, the blossoming time of home internet, <laughs> growing up in high school, I had a, one of my best friends, uh, me and him geek out on all things technology as it was coming up, building websites from scratch, sort of like learning HTML as like new things were released for HTML. He actually dropped out of high school. Not that I recommend that, but he dropped out of high school to uh, join a company in Los Angeles, California as a graphic designer. He also had graphic design shops. I, I never really got into design work, but he was working with this company called Flogo, um, which was this content network, like greeting cards, silly things like that. In the early, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, three years later, in 2002, uh, I caught, I reconnected with the guy and he was just on a trip uh, and we were in the same area. So we went and grabbed lunch, hung out for the day. You know, this was sort of when like cell phones were relatively new and like, you know, keeping in touch was harder. So I just caught up with him. Just like, yeah, how's work going and all this stuff. And yeah, I still, I still kept really in tune with technology. Uh, and I was like, hey. You know, if something ever comes up and I was living in Oregon, um, north of California at the time, I was like, hey, if something interesting comes up, like, you know, what I could do, you know what I've been a part of, like we grew up together, like, let me know. Oh, oh sorry to cut you off. What were you, what were you a part of before that? Uh, you know, so we were just like building websites. We were, we were heavily into gaming, heavily into tech, building websites. Like, you know, like it, it, was, it was an accomplishment to know a lot about how to use uh, computer tools back then. So things like Excel and Word back when in the early 2000s when they were very rudimentary, knowing how to do, you know, basically being, I would say, highly computer literate for, for that age, for that uh, time frame. And I just knew about technology. Like I knew how the internet worked when it was like sort of becoming mainstream when people were just like, I don't know. I dial a phone number and this modem makes noise and I'm have the <laughs> internet now. Like, so I, you know, I just, I understood how this all worked from a technology perspective. So like when I, say I, was, I was into stuff, it's just like, we just had this knowledge. We just grew up with it. So then a couple of weeks later, he's like, Hey, you want to come down here and work for this company, make $32,000 a year, which at the time was amazing. I was an analyst. I was like, sure. What do I do? This is back when you were, I was basically in charge of, running invoices and insertion orders around for signatures and everything. Cause back in the early days of the internet advertising was uh, two people on the phone, no video calls. Cause that didn't exist back yeah, then. Two yeah. people on the phone, hashing out a deal. Someone faxed over an insertion order with, with the aspects of the deal at the time, things like targeting were very nascent. So it was like, 
you're going to get 200 million impressions for this Yahoo homepage over the day. And uh, here's the price. Why you'd sign it, then you'd wire funds and you'd get on there and you'd have your, your day of, of running products on the internet, right? How um, much would that cost? Probably okay to talk about rates now, but I mean, <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, so you had, you had three homepages that were sort of prime, the prime real estate, Yahoo homepage, MSN homepage, and AOL homepage. You know, everyone always wanted AOL. Yahoo. Uh, Yahoo was the big one. Uh, that would range from two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars to take over their page for the day. Sometimes more, depending on the holidays. If you were, if you were, if you were the day before, a few days before Mother's Day or Christmas, rates change seasonally. I remember MSN being about in the hundred fifty thousand dollar range, and uh, and this was early two thousand prices, and and then you'd have. Um, AOL in like the $100,000 range or 80, 50, 75, 200. Didn't quite get as much traffic. But what you did is back then they had like a 300 by 250 ad unit uh, that was the primary ad unit on the homepage. And this is where most people ended up when they started on the internet because you would get around a hundred, you know, a couple hundred million impressions basically over over a day because anyone who like, Browsers would just open up and land on MSN. You like nobody changed their homepage. So anyone that was yeah, on like yeah. a, a PC, if you just open up Internet Explorer and just end up on MSN.com. And then there's other other placements. So like ad networks worked through ad servers. So you would either rent your own or sort of license your own ad server. You drop an ad code in and basically publishers would take that code that you give them drop it on their site and then like they would manually turn things on and off or it got more sophisticated that scheduling and stuff like that to run your snippet of code we had to host your own ad you had to track it and everything and you know those were days in, in product marketing we were selling skin products and all sorts of crazy stuff on the internet i sold simpsons bottle openers i've sold <laughs> little micro rc cars like you name it i sold it on the internet pretty much how do people actually like follow through the ad back then you, you were saying like people use the phone well, Are they no, so like to another would, website? Yeah, no, you you get the deal done over the phone. Like you would call yeah, yeah, yeah. up a salesperson at MSN and you would say, "Hey, uh, you know, you got any availability half day, a full day, what's what's available?" And this is also so the home pages were always like the prime real estate. But mm. ad sales still worked through a team of people if you wanted to be on the weather page. And like the fun tactics is like no no lying here. You would be like, "Okay, there is severe weather how much for weather page placement right now? Whoa. So like there'd yeah, be yeah. storms and all this stuff, but you'd those pages would get high, high impressions and you would and they would price a premium on there. And if you had good relations, it was a relationship game. Like ad sales back then, this was 2002, 2003, 2004-ish, basically, and, and all the way up to kind of like 2006, it was relationship. It was salespeople talking to each other. And you had People in your business that would go out and say, okay, you know, these are the CPMs we're going to get. This is how many guaranteed clicks we're going to get, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And you'd sign an insertion order, fax it around that you'd give them, you'd, you'd had, you had, um, ad, uh, just basically, um, you had key members that would go through and deliver the ad code, uh, to them. So you generate your own ad code in your own ad server. Here's the code. Here's the, here's the creative. It would go live and, you know, you would hope for the best, right? And that's how I got started in this industry, which is sort of like, wow, this is an interesting place to be. Like, so many people here advertising like CPMs, you know, you're talking CPMs are like, oh, it's 50 cent CPMs. Like, man, we'd kill for 50 cent CPMs right now. So that's how I got started. I, I jumped in. And then from there, I learned about landing page optimization and 
building out uh, funnels and just sort of the psychology of like how, like, and this was, would have been 2003, 2004, literally sort of on the forefront of direct response funnel optimization and, and trying to figure out like, what are the best practices? What are button placements looks like? What, what needs to be, what is the definition of like, what should a hero image have? And what should your headlines and sub headlines be in testing and testing and testing? Cause we were selling a lot of subscription products um, in that time frame. So this is when you're an analyst or did you sort of see I, I kind of like this grew. is interesting. I mean, it's the, it was the wild west of, of like the internet. So it was just kind of like, you just kind of took, I became an I'll analyst. I'll do a bit of this, bit of that. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, marketing seems interesting. Okay, let me learn about making web pages and then learning uh, le- learning how to make those web pages. And like, well, like if we change this, I bet we get more people to order. And then all of a sudden it's now called conversion rate optimization. But th- back then it was just like, let's move the button around and see if it yeah, works yeah, better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> those same people ended up, uh, so so we got bought in in 2005. Uh, by Fox Interactive Media, because the same company that I was a part of, which which ended up being called Intermix Media at the end, owned and built MySpace. So mm. we were, I worked for a product marketing division that was selling consumer packaged goods in, inside the same company adjacent to MySpace, which was interesting as a social network taking off, very popular for a period of time. Yeah, um, I definitely so- had to count. I mean, you know, you got, you got to have your, your profile, your song. You got to figure out who's going to be on you your top friends. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that's how a lot of people learned HTML. It was from MySpace, truthfully. Built yeah, yeah. on Cold Fusion, a little bit outdated technology um, originally. So when Fox bought us, it, they weren't really interested in us selling skin products and wrinkle creams and all that sort of stuff. Same group of people started up a new business and I joined up with them. Um, and we, we started this company uh, that, that's grown and grown and grown. And, you know, it's gone through a couple of different iterations and I grew with that company. So I started as like a marketing manager. I was doing search engine marketing. I was still doing landing page optimization, turned that into analytics because I really just loved the amount of, of data that you could extract. And, and we built our own technology. So I worked hand in hand with our development team, largely who's still there at that company to help build out technology for tracking and for optimization. And you know, this was back before data warehousing and like even like Google Analytics was a thing. You just sort of had to build your, you had your own ad server, you had your own web server, you just had, you know, technologists that would put tracking along the way. You built your own funnel analysis and all these things. So what did the tracking look like? Was it kind of like a spreadsheet? Yeah, pretty much. It was like raw server logs of people that made it to certain stages. You had to kind of have a linear funnel, meaning like, I would identify like, hey, here's the homepage. Here's the first, mm. you know, here's the product uh, detail page. Here's checkout page one. Here's checkout page two. Here's confirmation page. And you would basically, you know, have uh, a senior arc- or senior developer go through, extract server log information that we had stored and say, okay, from this traffic source, here's what we saw come through this page and this page is just very raw. And, it, it, you know, get output in a SQL query and then dropped in a Excel spreadsheet, right? Like, very rudimentary stuff, but we, and then we, we turned it into our own console and our technology. So we, we, we started getting more sophisticated. And this is 2006, 2007, not a lot of tools off the shelf could do what we did. And I grew with that company. So I, I became an analyst, I leveraged analytics to, to help us raise money and grow. And that same company ended up becoming what's now known as a, a company called Textile Fashion Group. Um, we got into fashion in 2009, and then they started building brands like Just Fab, Fabletics, which is a major um, uh, athleisure line and, and uh, women's fitness wear line. 
Savage X by Rihanna, all these big brands sort of built off of the same core methodologies with a lot of really smart DR marketers. And I personally grew up that company as well, just sort of as a, as a marketing manager doing Google to analytics to FP&A, financial planning and analysis. And then um, parlayed that into running our member service operation, grew as a manager and leader. And long story short, I ended up running two of the brands there for uh, about two years, uh, managing a $300 million a year revenue P&L, about $50 million a year in advertising on TV and all over the internet. And I've been working with those guys for about 14 years. Soup to nuts, because the same people I first started with at that previous company. Decided to leave on really great terms, but I'm just like, hey, like I just kind of want to see what else the world has to offer. Landed at an awesome cause-driven company called Thrive Market, online grocery company, membership-based company, uh, really cool product, awesome mission behind it. It came in as our chief marketing officer uh, during a big hyper-growth period there. Um, but I only stayed there for about a year and a half because ultimately my desire was to be more of an operator of a business, not just a marketer, not that I'm against marketing because I've been surrounded by it my whole career, but I spent so much time just operating business. And then landed here at Stealth through a mutual friend, uh, introduced me to the founder here at Stealth. And me and him have been partnered up ever since then. Um, and what Stealth does is we're a marketing agency and an incubator arm that helps build businesses or, or just spend advertising uh, to the tune of we spend about 20 to $30 million collectively a month for all of our clients in all sorts of pretty much managed verticals. So everything social, Google, Snap, TikTok, Pinterest, Critio. Live in 10, anything we can manage behind a screen, we we pretty much do it. And that's what we're doing now. And then my job as COO here is just running the ship and building the team, trying to stay ahead of what's always changing in advertising and marketing. <laughs> yeah. 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 So are you helping businesses with their creatives on those platforms or are you helping them with the kind of like analytics backend uh, more, stuff? More so the creative and, and front end advertising. So uh, our typical client comes to us. We do creative uh, production. Uh, we've started doing creative production, meaning we actually uh, have the means to shoot or direct to shoot our own you know, raw content. And then we edit nice. it for production. Most of our clients, they have assets and they don't know what to do with it, right? Because like having a photo or a video, but then making a finished ad to for two appropriate for platform, two different things. So our typical client, we, we, we do creative post-production um, so we can help build ads for the right format for the right advertising. So Facebook ads are different than Insta even. And Insta, they're all different than Snap and TikTok, et cetera. And then we do the media buying and optimization into those platforms. So the, there's, there's significant analytics involved in doing that, of course, because largely media optimization is math tells you and the, and the data tells you where you need to go or where, you, where you're at right now. Uh, a little harder to get some of that data these days with the changes with Apple, but but the fact of the matter is it's a highly data-driven output with creative feeding those machines. And that's what we've been doing and, and growing really well doing it. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that actually kind of segues into a later question I had. Like, what do you think is going to happen? I, I kind of feel like we're we're coming to like a singularity in advertising where like consumers are kind of realizing, oh, this is actually a sponsored post. App big companies are incentivized to protect our privacy. Do you think that consumers are going to wisen up to a point where we can't sell them things? You know, it's funny. Uh, this is, uh, here's the interesting truth, right? The internet is propped up on advertising. This is, and some people don't want to accept that, but the fact of the matter is the, 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 the internet at large being individual websites, most of them being free, the reason why they're free is they're propped up in some capacity by advertising dollars, right? Like, you know, Facebook is free 
because of advertising. That's where they make their money. And the incentivization of people, of, of, of companies leaning towards privacy, Facebook doesn't want this. Meta no, does not want this. You know, TikTok does not want this. Apple made a decision and, and Google's making one like kind next year that is to the sake of consumer privacy. What is going to happen, I think, is a lot of the old stuff in advertising will become new again. Meaning, I think, I, I would predict that Meta has to, at some point, start creating relief in CPMs. CPMs are higher than they've ever been, yet you have less tools at your disposal as a marketer to target people. The beauty of the internet, and look, I don't think it was right. Don't get me wrong with this. But like the, the peak ability to scale on Facebook was pre-Cambridge Analytica, where, where people were trading through above the or below the market type uh, actions of like, you could get an email list of 100,000 Facebook accounts and target your stuff to those 100,000 people. Can't do that anymore, right? Cambridge Analytica blew that up. And then sort of the, the last nail in that coffin was you know, iOS 14.5, which really put the kibosh on tracking and sophisticated targeting, which has actually fully crippled a lot of small businesses. When I say, and why small businesses? Well, small businesses tend to have a niche audience because, you know, if you're a meal at home company, everyone's got to eat. Okay. You're not as impacted most likely as somebody that's selling bathing suits or they're selling uh, prescription eyeglasses on the internet. Because there's kind of a specific targeting you need there. And you need to be able to leverage intent-based marketing or action-based marketing. So things like, oh, I want to go to people that went to this product detail page and track that event and then target them as a lookalike audience for people that made it this far in my purchase process. Because, you know, the beauty of Facebook when it was at its peak as an advertising platform, as, a, as an advertiser, look, I'm, I'm for privacy. So, but as an advertiser, that data is juicy. The fact that you could sit there and say, I want to get people that look like people that, that bought my product or that, that went to the checkout page or that went to this page or did all three of these things or made, a, you know, added to cart and went to checkout, but they didn't purchase yet. You could combine that and, and leverage that. And the black box inside of Facebook was able to deliver you to customers at the right price. Like that was glorious. The fact is a lot of that's gone now. So where I'm going with that is traditional advertising methods, channel diversification right now, fantastic move. Places like TikTok and Snap do not have the CPMs, but they're sort of bound by the same targeting rules now because Facebook's targeting is, is much more restricted. You have other opportunities to get on uh, you know, OTT, uh, try to get on, you know, if you have video assets, get on, get on Hulu ads, get on, you know, YouTube more. What's OTT for us down under? Oh, um, over the top. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Over the top. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were talking about like a platform. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, those like being able to get on, on all these, uh, new advertising channels is kind of a forced factor now. I also think things like direct mail, uh, you know, uh, the least inflated cost of, of advertising over the past 10 years um, mm -hmm. has its place. And, and you're able to target still people and addresses on there's databases there. Um, but I think all businesses now have to shift to a, you used to be able to build huge businesses on just Meta or now knows Meta. I'm still going to call it Facebook forever, but like- Please call it Facebook. <laughs> okay, look, <laughs> I don't like you calling it Meta. Let's just- Me neither. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> And so like, yeah, you used to be able to build gigantic businesses just by being sophisticated at Facebook. 
Now you need to have a full advertising fingerprint that has you on multiple channels, has you focusing on organic. Um, so being creating a, and cultivating a community and a, and a presence. And also, I think the other th- thing is you need, you need amazing creative. It is not enough. Like, like I, I built a living off of just having an image with a starburst on it that said 25% off this thing. And that would just sell because it would take a designer 15 minutes to make, and we would go in and make hundreds of thousands of dollars off of it. Right now you got to up your game. You have to invest in a creative that's catching that, that, that catches people's eyes details you as a brand and your product and how it's being used has social proofing. So influencers like influencers as a performance channel, not as much, but influencers as content creators, a gold mine. Who knows better how to make stuff for TikTok than somebody that's got 3 million followers on TikTok and they make awesome content. You pay them to basically shoot your product. I don't care how many orders they're pushing, but now I have good I have a good ad unit native to the platform by somebody who's an expert at it more than me, right? So I think the things that sort of change, like advertising is not going to go anywhere. Brands are going to have the dollars to spend. Direct marketing is a art or is a function older than time since people have been selling stuff and, and buy now and we'll also do this or, hey, just yeah, go back to pre-electricity. People are selling things and giving deals. So that's not going to change. But what I'm keeping my eye out on is what does the market do to shift to that? Will Facebook blink, lower ad rates, create more ad units? There's a lot of unknowns with the metaverse and how advertising is going to play into that. That's a ever-evolving thing right now. You have the fact that people aren't spending less time on the internet. Just advertising's harder right now. So there's going to be more opportunities for, for us to still find people and advertise to them. And people are going to have to buy stuff in order to keep the internet propped up, right? And prices will give. Like, it'll happen, I think. But I don't think, I think it's just everyone's got to be able to weather the storm. You have to keep your eyes out for engaging new ways to market and, and tell your brand story. And then from all of that, grow and adapt your product needs through that and be ready to, to try new things because this is this sort of setback, if you will, in the ability to advertise to people is without a doubt going to create opportunity somewhere. That's how this always works. So that's how I've seen it work for 20 years. People freaked out when can spam became a thing. All of a sudden, email wasn't going to work anymore. <laughs> People yeah. freaked out when Flash, Adobe Flash, was no longer an acceptable ad unit. Everyone had to switch to HTML5 or, or something similar. That worked itself out. We had a global financial crisis in 2008. People thought you couldn't advertise anywhere. It worked itself out. So it's going to be hard. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not going to say it's quick. But from this setback will come innovation and I think it's a great opportunity for brands out there to find fun new ways to, to market their product. Yeah, this is exactly what I'm getting at. Like, you kind of have a meta thing going on where the internet is built on ads, but I think certain people are realizing that like you can charge people directly and say like we're not gonna we're not gonna give you any ads. It's just you pay me, I give you the thing you want. Bada bing, bada boom. But then if everybody did that and we got rid of all ads, then no one would have any money because we would just be paying everybody. Right. One. Yeah. Yeah. So as a consumer, would anybody pay per megabyte used over the internet? And would they say, oh, hey, you know, we're, we're, you, you and I are doing this call right now. We're sending traffic through the internet. Completely it's going to cost both of us 
25 cents or a dollar or something like that for us to do this. No, they're not going to do that. The consumer wouldn't do that. My biggest concern, I guess I'd say concern is what could happen is the monolithic approach of an Amazon and the Alibabas of the world becoming the destination to buy anything because without Mm -hmm. your ability to market your own product, everybody knows Amazon. Everybody in other parts of the world knows Alibaba. And all of that just means like, hey, at a certain point, if I can't buy it on that website because I'm not getting ads and I can't buy direct from a brand anymore, is that just going to create a world where you only buy from those sites? That kind of happens now. Like brands that are... Oh, it's happening now. Yeah. I mean... Brands that are on both, like I, I, we deal with this a lot in, in the service provider and professional, professional services world, we'll get brands that are like trying to do both. They, they're like, we have an uh, FBA yeah, store. Yeah, we, ha- we have this. Store. Yeah. And it's like, uh, okay, but you realize that if I'm running ads, I'm going to get X number of people that are going to see your ad. A certain percent of them are literally just going to look for your product on Amazon and not buy direct. And you're sending, you know, Amazon's going to take their cut. It's got to be similar price, but you're just advertising for Amazon if you're running on both. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm saying your direct-to-consumer advertising will not pencil out. And and like almost 100% of the time, when you start with an Amazon store and you're trying to build your own vertical brand because you want the taste of vertical, you want to control your margins, you want to do all that, it is a real challenge. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I've seen it fail more often than succeed because if anyone's going to, if, if you're going to buy from Amazon or direct to your.com, people are going to buy from Amazon eight out of 10 times. Yeah. hundred percent. Because you can't make the, the prices aren't competitive. People love their prime. People know that Amazon's got their back. They, they're like, yeah. Guarantees. So, so, so like, why would I go to your website when I could just buy your product from Amazon? So yeah, it's the world we're headed to, but I, and I hope it doesn't get that vertical, but advertising is not going to go away. We'll find new ways to do it. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy. It's kind of like um, I started writing a blog on Medium, and, mm-hmm. and then I and then I learned about SEO, and I was like, I am giving these guys just domain authority, page rank on, on topics you these... know about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, why don't I just put these blogs on my website and you know help nurture that? But yeah, no, I, I'm really interested in the whole thing. I think the uh, the other thing to think about is like I'm interested in what you said uh, earlier about Google coming in with its own privacy thing because. There's, there's some companies coming out like Brave, NVIDIA, who are like, we're just going to circumvent ads on the search engine mm-hmm. if you give us a bit of money. Yep. You know, when I heard about that, I was like, oh, cool. That'll be, that'll be interesting. But then I'm like, Google is obviously just so big. They know about this. They're going to just do their own version of it. Um, yeah. What do you think is going to happen there? I don't, you know, I don't know. I can't read into the future, but here's my thought is there's one thing especially here in the U S that I think legislators and the consumer public will get behind is more privacy Mm. as an advertiser. It sucks as a person. Great. Yeah. But like, you know, I always like to say it's, it's, it's a hot pressing issue and it's only going to get hotter because people actually knew I like to imagine anybody us or even right now we're leaving Mm. an identifiable trail of data. Think of it as you're walking through the future there is just data flowing behind you at all times. And, and I don't think the average person realizes how much. You got, you got one of these? Oh, boy. Every, you, there is so much data being printed about you every second of your life. There, there's, a, there's a 
there's a piece of data that will exist right now that says you and I are on this Zoom call. If, if asked, if, if Zoom got asked, they could say, oh yeah, this person and this person, they were on this call, right? But then on top of that, my phone knows we were on this call because it's in my calendar, right? My computer knows, Google knows we were on this call because it's in my Google calendar. My Slack knows that we're on this call because I'm getting a reminder in Slack about this through Google Calendar as a plugin. There's just a stream of data. You're never going to miss a meeting, are you? <laughs> right? But it's just one thing. So like, think of the stream of data you're leaving if you're just on a video call walking around your house. The things that your phone, uh, I'm not picking on phones, but it's like, that is a portable stream of data that just says, hey, uh, this is where you are GPS. I, I, you can triangulate somebody in their house. You can triangulate where they're driving. Um, you know what stores they went past, what Wi-Fi networks they were a part of, if they got on a plane, all these things, right? Oh, yeah. So, so like, there's going to be a push for privacy. And as people really realize, like, how much information about them is being stored, now, not all of it's actionable, but it exists. Push comes to shove. Is very hard to hide from your digital footprint. So what that's going to mean is consumers are going to love privacy. You're going to start seeing things where these pay for no ads type worlds will start doing integrated placements, right? You'll start seeing it's not an ad, but here's an article. Go back, going back to the advertorial model. Um, here's an article that maybe has a little bit of a bias towards a specific product or drives interest towards a product, right? Um, you're going to start seeing videos. I think this is one thing that is an opportunity. It's a weird, it's it's hard as a direct marketer to say this because direct marketing to me means I have attribution. I, I have data that sort of says, here's your impression and here's your order and I see everything in between. You're going to start seeing product placement. Like, you know, it, there's, a, there's a world where, and some podcasts do this, but you know, there's there's worlds where you as the host might have just a Coke bottle in the bathroom, or, oh, or an, yeah, 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 yeah. You course. know, just like the subtleties of that. So, like you know, Coke might pay you like, hey, like every podcast, you, you keep a just Coke bottle in the background there, we'll pay you fifty bucks, right? Like you're gonna start seeing more of that if, if people start circumventing it. But that model of like pay to be involved is gonna also wreck consumers because they're not gonna want to do things like. Oh yeah, you know, YouTube is no longer free for everybody, but you know, we're going to just charge you by, you know, 2 cents every 10 minutes to watch it, right? Or something like that. Seems unre seems reasonable that maybe that bills through your ISP, right? But then or you know, and all this, but then all of a sudden people are going to be like, "Wow, like holy moly, I'm just racking getting up. racking it up really quickly." <laughs> so there's got to be a world where the internet still stays propped up by advertising and publishers are able to do that. It will just change to being brands that can really mass market and have the, I think you're going to need a little bit more run, runway and revenue. It's going to be harder for new brands to get into market 100%. The advertising is going to go away. It's just going to become better, but less targeted. Mm -hmm. the, the rub, this is like, the look, I'm a biased advertiser. I'm a biased advertiser. I can't say I'm not. But here's the deal. When people were giving away more of their privacy and when, when all these things existed, it's invasive, but it did allow advertisers like myself and others to serve you the best ads that were most relevant to you. And that's now not as possible anymore. This is where we're at right now. We're at the point where people are getting ads that they hate even more because the personalization, the ability for us to target you correctly is now gone, right? I get ads all the time, even on Facebook for products that I have zero relevance in. And you, you can imagine as an advertiser too, like with how many brands we work on, my data profile on Facebook of like what ads to serve this guy 
is insane because I've clicked yeah. on so many different ads in my life. But now it's getting obnoxious where I'm like, that's like, I, why am I serving this? Because it, it, there's, there's just people are having to shoot in the dark. So that's the part that I think is unfortunate. But I understand the human in me totally gets it. Like, I don't like that much data being out there. But at the same time, it did make the Internet a lot more palatable. And with that, you're going to have just like people hating the ads that they're getting even more, which sort of sucks. Yeah, totally. I mean, I agree with you, but I, I, I just also hold like a utopian kind of thing where it all just works out. But uh, I mean, that'd be really great. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and, you know, people like consumers are like the pandemic and everything that came from that. One thing that it did do is that it, it created 10 years of adoption of Internet ordering, meaning that oh, yeah, like yeah. people that used to order on the Internet four or five times a year are now ordering two to three times a month. It, it created an adoption and a convenience and a, and a new and, and, and e-commerce as a channel is so much more acceptable. People aren't worried about putting their stuff on the Internet anymore like that. that yeah, there was a time period there where people were like, sorry, this is just reminded me of like 10 or 12 years ago, maybe at this point talking to like my in-laws and stuff and, you know, the older generation and then being like, I'm just really scared to put my credit card on the internet. Cause it's going to get stolen. That doesn't yeah, like, yeah. happen anymore. Like it doesn't yeah. like, there's, I'm sure there's shady sites where you can lose it, but honestly, like the tokenization and people don't understand that. They're like when you put a credit card in a field, now you're buying from Shopify or something nobody has access to what that number is it gets tokenized and hashed and rehashed and like in mm. a way that nobody's ever going to solve it it exists only in what you see and then it's gone basically and saved as a token but like you know there are people like people no one's really scared of that anymore no one's scared about punching in their credit card on the internet i think one thing that's interesting to me is you know mobile devices being the, the primary way people use the internet these days I am a huge, I don't know how this is going to play into to advertising, but the lowered friction on ordering through things like Apple Pay. Um, as oh, yeah, that, dude. It, like, it makes it so much easier. It's like, literally, it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to buy this. Here's my face. Tap, tap. We good. And yeah, like, yep. it fills your Yeah. Like, so <laughs> that's pretty cool. And when you get somebody with that intent to be able to buy, it's now so much more frictionless. Instead of like sitting there and being like, I got to punch in my first name and then I, I got to tap on the next one because you can't just tap. Like now it's like so seamless. They have your address stored in there. All that's really good. But now you just got to find the customer when they and when they want your product and find a way to get it in front of them. That's that's the challenge right now. Yeah, I bought an ice cream yesterday and I got the lovely little ding when I when I yep. pay, pay waved it. And, yep. at the, and then a couple of hours later, I exported um, the final draft of a short film I've been working on for like a year. And I was, there was silence and I was like, oh, I just kind of wish there was a little... You know, I need, I need a little haptic <laughs> feedback right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be nice. So that's all well and scary, but um, we, we should we should pivot to um to subscriptions because I know you're yeah. a complete expert in that. So I want to ask. I actually run more services than products. Make people films. Are there any different variables, or are they kind of aligned uh, when you have a subscription service versus a product? Yeah, you know. Subscription services um, and, and recurring revenue models, which is really the, the better way I think about it because there's nuance there. I like to tell people, and I've said this now on a, on a few podcasts, so it's not new. It's about creating a relationship between you and the consumer. If you're mm -hmm. a subscription or recurring revenue model of some kind, it's not enough to just be stuff in a box. It's not enough to just like exist. You got to create and nurture a relationship with your customer. Um, and that takes work. 
it, like it, it's like any other relationship in one's life. It, it takes work, and that work comes in the form of really great communication. A lot of parallels to how people interact personally. Like a subscription or recurring revenue company is now in essence, a utility to them. It's a bill that they get every month or quarter or whatever they're on. So with that comes expectations. Part of those expectations are quality service. It comes with a quality product um, when you need it and not more than you need and not less than you need. It's like just the right amount. It also comes with uh, you know needing to solve a, a, a pain for that consumer. So uh, one of the easiest examples I give, and we work with a lot of meal at home companies, but look, everyone's got to eat and getting food delivered to your front door. That's, you know, uh, ready to ready to prepare or pop it in the microwave and you're ready to eat does a few things. One, it's not just convenient. It's not just a feature is that food shows up at your door. That's awesome. But someone's already prepared it as well. So it's going to be like healthy. And this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got the right macros you're looking for. It's got the right nutrition profile you're looking for. But you know what else it does? Saves you time from going to the grocery store, time that you could spend with your family, your friends, or just not the grocery store. It, it could be less expensive, so it saves you money that you could spend doing something else. Gives you peace of mind if you have dietary concerns, uh, as in you're you maybe either trying to lose weight or you have you know gluten problems, all these sorts of things. You know this food's coming to you. It's going to be good. It's going to be tasty. It's going to also be good for you in that case. So it relieves a it relieves a huge stressor because everyone's got to eat. Now, part of that problem is being taken care of for you. When you have a product that, that can do that, and, and, and that's like an extreme case because eating is a necessity, but say you're a fashion company, people want to keep their wardrobe and, and their, their, their self-image up to date, right? Um, so you work with a, with a fashion subscription company that keeps your wardrobe modern, it keeps it to your style, footwear, outerwear, whatever you're, you're into. And if you're somebody that cares about that, now... You're not, and you have trust with a brand that vibes with your style. Now, all of a sudden, you're able to re- reduce the pain of going to a, a store or just buying something online and be like, I don't know if that's going to work. Maybe this will work. Maybe it's not. Like now, you got a subscription that's that's bringing you fashion and solving part of your inner turmoil of like of your of your overall image, right? Like your own personal image, which which is important to everybody to have a sense of that and style. So that's what subscriptions have to do. It's not just, hey, here's stuff. We're throwing it in a box for you. They can't do that. E-commerce can do that. E-commerce and advertising is a very different beast between both of those as well. Subscription, you're buying and acquiring customers mathematically to their lifetime value, which you can predict. It's, it's a very predictable number, usually pretty consistent. With e-commerce, you got to have a ROAS that sort of uh, return on ad spend that presents itself immediately. You might be able to buy a customer that's spending $400 with you for $100 and get that four to one ROAS right now. But that same $100, you could get a customer that is going to be have an $800 LTV, right? Or you could pay $200 to get that $800 LTV customer and actually make more money with them. So, How are you predicting that LTV? Uh, so predicting LTV, it, it's just a couple of numbers on, on the most basic level. You need to know your revenue that you're getting on a on a you know per transaction basis. You need to know your churn or take a, a guess at your churn and understanding cohort. So cohort in this case, typically new customers in a in a new in a period in a month, right? So you know April 2022. This is how many new customers we got. It's a fixed number. It doesn't really change. You're not going to go back historically and update that. And then you look at their churn over time. So uh, much like a recency frequency model that exists with, with e-commerce where you're saying, hey, they're going to purchase 
Average customer purchases 2.5 to three times a year, every 90 days. And once they're 180 days out or something, they, they drop off. It's kind of the same thing where you're like, but the thing is, you're like, okay, we started with 100 customers. Next month, we're going to have 80. Next month after that, we're going to have 60. Next month after that, it starts dropping 5% per month or whatever. Um, and there's there's sort of, I, I would say I have a, a feel for it from an industry perspective. But it, it makes logical sense. Your mo- your biggest churn is in your first payment or first, you know, after your first payment, between that and the second payment, then it starts going down really aggressively from there. So it's usually around 20%, 10-ish percent, then, you know, somewhere between 7 and 5% in perpetuity until, you know, the cohort runs dry. But subscriptions give you more, typically a higher customer LTV. Um, they give you uh, predictability with your business, meaning you know how much product you're going to need in the upcoming months. So your supply chain and you know the ability to model your business makes a lot of sense. Um, and if you just ha- it, it, like look, you have to take a guess and then chew it up over time. Like you, you don't know until you know, but you can you can be conservative. Uh, when I say that, is like really aggressive with like your churn rates. And if they come in under, great, you adjust, right? But you need churn, you need revenue. Uh, based on whenever you're getting it, if it's monthly, quarterly, semi-annually or annually, right? Whatever you're doing. And you just model all that out and um, you can come to an LTV. One hidden piece, I would say, or one important piece, which this is like an important piece for any type of business, is having good margins. If you're an advertising company, as in, scratch that, if you're a company that acquires customers through advertising, you need to have a certain amount of margin for advertising. Meaning if you're a product that operates on, margins delivery to the customer from there, not including media and team and salaries and all that, but just to the customer, you're not leaving a lot of room to acquire customers, right? We say 50% about the bare minimum for you to be able to do that. 50% gross margin to the customer. So if a customer buys a product for $100, your cost of goods plus shipping needs to be $50 or less to get that to that customer's door. Um, And then you start chipping away at you know your your the rest of your economics your customer acquisition costs your team from there so you can come up with an LTV uh, it's relatively you know you're talking about addition subtraction and multiplication division here it's not very it's not it's not hard calculus um, yeah I just thought that you were like predicting LTV or from an individual not from like prior customers predicting LTV is is basically just creating a pro forma model that looks at your business and then you come up with an LTV there's easy math with this too honestly like most, if you're a, a subscription brand of about you know fifty to hundred dollars per order, you use use four and a half orders a year as your as a basic litmus. That's your LTV, and I, and I will say plus or minus ten percent. That's about right. So if you don't even want to go through all that, if you know your AOB is fifty dollars, assume about a two hundred to two hundred fifty dollar LTV. Like start there. Now you true it up with actuals over time, but like four and a half orders. Uh, in that first year of LT uh, of that customer's life cycle, pretty much where you're going to sit with subscriptions. Some better, some worse, but that's a, that's a conservative number, I'd say. Okay, so it's about you know keeping in touch with people. It's about good ads. It's about being you know thinking outside of the box. Well, I actually wanted to ask you this earlier. Can you run me through like subscription advertising history 101? Because I know that you were like at the at the um. Intermediate yeah. company that became MySpace. So back back a long time ago, things like terms and conditions were were suspect at best. So subscriptions started off go go pre-internet. There, there's 
there's a, there have been subscriptions over time, music clubs, things like that, that have existed, that have had a very confusing subscription economy. The internet and stuff that I did early on the internet, terms and conditions, legislation around that didn't really exist. So we didn't say that there wasn't a subscription, but you know, you would have, oh, this is a totally free trial. And then after 14 days, we're going to bill you this big price and it, there's no refunds, no returns, no anything, right? That's how it was in the early 2000s and, it, you know, a little dicey. And then over time, it, it took a decade or more to really get there. Subscription has turned into something that people are one aware of and two, they don't shy away from anymore. And I, and I, I can distinctly remember in like the mid 2000s, there was a absolute disdain for the subscription economy from the consumer level. Like, because of maybe things that I was a part of, maybe not, but a lot of really shitty, excuse me, subscriptions out there that screwed people over. Like they really mm-hmm. did. And, and you couldn't cancel. You like, you'd be on a subscription for 10 months. You, you're the customer service wouldn't work. No one Ooh. would ever answer an email. <laughs> and like, you had to take it up with your bank. And that was like, there was oh, a lot man. of horrible, I wasn't part of ones that bad, but there were a lot of them that were that bad. Um, now, over time, because of the subscription promise and because more recurring revenue models exist, it's all a vast majority of, of subscriptions, not just because of the law with laws that exist, but just because in order to be competitive, people are looking out for themselves. And when they're jumping into a subscription, there's a couple of things you got to have. One, you got to have terms that are easy to deal with. You can't have a confusing subscription that makes people wonder when I'm going to get billed, how I'm going to get billed, how much I'm going to get billed. So transparency is key. Obviously, good customer service and resolution, right? Like I preach now after everything, it's like if a customer wants to leave, you let them leave and you give them the best offboarding experience possible because there was a time where you had to make canceling really hard because you, you try to keep every customer you could get. But now cancel a frictionless canceling is actually offboarding a, a customer. Thing. Yeah, and they're going to talk about you and say, yeah, but it was easy to cancel. I like the product, but it was easy to cancel. That's most people that want to cancel you, by the way. They're like, product was good. I got too much of it. It was really easy to cancel. Not a big deal. You should try it, buddy. Like, good. That's yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, instead yeah. of like, Positive cycle. instead of like, yeah, you, you want me to tell you about this brand? I bought it. I tried to cancel <laughs> for three months. I sent something to the BBB. I blasted them on Facebook and Google reviews. And, you know, I wrote a letter to the president of the company and talked to their entire, like all this stuff. And then I finally got a, a you know, half my refund and I hate that company. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, so like subscription has become over time, not just a, a acceptable thing, but a reasonable thing that people will do as long as it meets those needs. It's got to be something that removes the pain. It's got to be convenient. It's got to be uh, the right price point, have a unique value proposition, all these things that is a subscription promise holistically are, are commonplace now. And those best subscriptions have it and they provide a, a consistent value for what you pay for. That's like, that's really what it is. Like people, you know, people have to pay their power bill. They have to pay their phone bill. Um, you know, but I think most people, you don't hear people really complain too much these days about the price of their cell phone bill because of the utility it brings. The same mm-hmm. thing goes with a subscription. Good. If it's not something people need in their life, they got to be like, you know, this is a great product and it's definitely worth the price, right? And I'm definitely getting the value for that. But it has changed a lot and it's been adopted a lot more. And, and candidly, investors and people that are going to put money into your business, they love recurring revenue. 
just because it's predictable. You can see yeah. it. You, it, it it's, it's a, a calculator that looks into the future. Forward-looking revenue becomes less of a mystery. When you're in an e-commerce store, you know, if, if you've ever been a part of those or seen those, it's like, we had our biggest month, followed by yep. we had our worst month, followed by a new record, followed by <laughs> I think we're out of business. Like, like subscriptions smooth that out. And then, uh, you know, the 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 outside of the promise, outside of all that, the, the basics with subscription and recurring revenue models kind of comes down to this. If you got a product or a service that people would like in their lives, not it's not for everybody, but they're going to love it. And they're, and they're going to stay with it. And you're going to have an awesome customer that'll bring you a high LTV where 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was shady and weird. And it, subscriptions had a bad rap because 80% of the people out there were bad actors in that space. Now, I would say it's the opposite. There, and I'm, there's still some scams out there. Don't get me wrong. I, mean, I would never say there's not one. But you're not going to get scammed if you're buying on a store on Shopify, really, on a subscription. Um, you, and if you do, you're going to figure it out quickly and they're going to solve it for you. They just, your ability to do research on a company now, so much easier. Looking at how legit a company is, it's not just like, oh, where's this company? They started two weeks ago and they have 5,000 customer reviews and they all say the same thing. Yeah, maybe this is a little shady. That doesn't mm. really happen these days either. So it's changed a lot. It's a lot more acceptable. It's not for everybody though, but it's not. It, I would say it's not as it's not filled with as much vitriol and hatred as it used to be. If I'm being honest, because there was so a, the utopia is coming. It's getting there. It's getting there, right? Um, I think the the demystification. Honestly, I, I think a lot of the credit of that goes to also like streaming services, some of the biggest subscriptions in the world, Spotify, you know, Amazon mm-hmm. Prime, all these things, Netflix. All these companies have now said, okay, things can be on subscription and they have good ones. Like, I mean, value is, is, is everyone's opinion, but you need to cancel your Amazon, you cancel Spotify. It's easy to do that, right? Like, yeah, yeah, 100%. So, so people are used to it now. People find room for it and, you know, they don't hate it as much. Man, yeah, thanks. That's you're such a wealth of knowledge. It's, uh, <laughs> it's incredible. I can talk. Yeah. I can talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. So I know we're probably nearing the end of the hour. Um, I got one more kind of question. Ooh, I love it. So I heard you talking on another podcast um, about if you're a subscription service, it's, it's a really good thing to you know, showcase that you have a social cause. Uh-huh. And I, I debate this. I have a little philosophy club with my friends. And we kind of debated this once of like, you know, you, you can have one beer that's just a beer. And you can have another beer that's like, we, well, we actually donate to an elephant sanctuary. And we, we were kind of undecided on like, you know, is that the responsibility of the customer to help the elephants or, you know, it's, it's just such a macro problem. Like, you know, mm-hmm. climate change, you know, take any, any macro problem. What do you think about that? Do you think every company should be regulated and say, well, we, we should all give socially or, or should it be somewhere in the middle? Or So my opinion think? on this is if you can, you should. And that's like sort of a personal cause driven mindset of just like, I think that a business, a for-profit enterprise can find ways to, to help people not just or help people through its commerce. Now, is it what is necessary? I don't know about that. I'm very passionate about it, though. And it, it's got to also be authentic to what you do. So there's like things that fit. So like your example, you know, a beer that is donating to an elephant sanctuary feels a little weird. Right. But if a beer is donating to 
a healthy hop supply chain. I'm making something up right there, but you know, the, oh, yeah, 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 sustainability in the rainforests, yeah, sure, connected. Um, it's a little bit more connected, right? Um, when I was at Thrive, one thing that we did, the whole purpose of that company, a big part of its cause was to solve what in the States is sort of referred to as food deserts, where, you know, people that have dietary restrictions or gluten, you know, gluten is a big one, right? They yeah, live I've in seen parts- those food deserts. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. So like, I've been to the, to the East. Yeah. You, right. 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 There you go. Crazy. So like Supermarkets have just sugar bread and no fruit and vegetables. Correct. You can't get anything that suits your dietary needs. We help deliver that right to the doorstep at Thrive. And, and that was that was a purpose of the company. But the social cause behind it is the prices on Thrive for comparable products regularly beat Amazon. That was a big thing. Like on a, on a per skew basis, once you're a member, you paid $60 a year to be a member, like, a, like Costco or something like that. What we did is every time we got a member, we donated a membership for free to a low-income family. So now the low-income family is able to buy through us things that they need dietary wise, organic, gluten-free foods, et cetera, at prices cheaper than they could buy them in any grocery store. So even if they're not in a food desert, say they're in Los Angeles, California, but they can't afford to go to Whole Foods and and, and other grocery stores where organics are more expensive than the comparable products, we flip that. So that was a cause that we had. And it, it served perfectly. Every, we, every membership we, gave, we got, we gave away another one. So having a social cause, to, especially to a younger consumer here, meaning like the people that are just, you know, that the new 25 to 35 or, you know, 25 to 34 rung, having something that makes sense for you to stand by and showing that part of the dollars we collect as a company are making a positive impact is important. Is it absolutely required? No, obviously not. Get, get 100 businesses together. You know, maybe I'd be stoked if 25% of them had a cause that they were truly passionate about, but that is only something that helps. Like, you know, like any company could probably find half a point of its, of its bottom line to give away to something to make the world a better place. And that might, that's going to gain you more customers than it's going to lose you. So why not? And it's not just about getting more customers, but it's also just like, it's a good thing to do as I, as I think about it. It's just a good thing to do. It's, it's money that's not missed, but can make a difference. And like one thing that we do at Stealth, and I, as we live this example, it's easy for me to say, all you brands do it. Um, mm. oh, so this is like a shameless plug of something we're doing at Stealth. So this part is like we created, we have a part of our business called the Impact Lab. And what we do is we actually created a product that is uh, teaches people how to make a uh, Shopify store, how to run their ads, how to get assets made and how to build a business. And we're actually uh, having uh, young entrepreneurs like inner city kids go through this program, learn how to bring a product to market. And we actually donate them to them hard cash at the end, like $5,000 to $10,000 in cash to spend on advertising. Wow. And, and, to, and to take their product and to make their dream a reality. Like they, they work on getting their product in the house. And we have like, there was one of our spoiling something, but one of our, one of our kids in this, they, they're creating a, a product that is, I don't want to spoil it too much because it's, it's, it's going to launch soon, but basically long story short, it, it meant a lot to him as some, as a kid that spent a lot of time in hospitals growing up to create something that helps those kids. So we're launching a product that, that helps kids that are spending a lot of their life in the hospital. Like to me, that's just amazing. And this this kid 
doesn't come from a from a wealthy family that can just throw a bunch of money at this. Like he's bootstrapping this himself. He's working, he's doing all this stuff, he's coming to us, and he didn't know how to do any of this. And, and like you're gonna bring that to market. So this is like a social cause we believe in, and we that money comes out of our pockets. Like we built this ourselves. Nice. We're donating it. And like like we're a marketing, we're a marketing agency, right? Like we're a service provider to brands. We spend their money and make them more. But what we see as important is how do we make the next entrepreneurs? How do we create entrepreneurialism among kids that many of them have the least hope possible? So this is a cause that we created, right? So like a company can do that. And a company can, you'll find from like an internal culture perspective at a company, if you're, if you're a big company, you got hundreds of people employed there. Let them, let, let the most passionate of them go out and make an impact. Donate company money to go out and say, hey, like, we're going to go sponsor a food kitchen for a week. And, and you'll have passionate team members that'll be appreciative for us doing that. They'll execute it. It doesn't have to be something that you write a huge part about on the website, but just like, that's a newsletter piece. That's, that's some good local PR. That's just a good thing to do. So like, find a little bit of scratch and it doesn't, you'd be surprised on how, in your company making millions of dollars a month and all this stuff, like what just a couple thousand dollars a year can make an impact to certain families that are concerned about putting food on their table. And you could solve some of that. All that adds up and it's just a good thing to do. So that's my take. No. Yeah, I agree. I'll, I'll say, you know, I really do. Um, I like your phrase, like it's not bringing any harm. It's not a bad thing to do. It's, it's, it's just a good thing to do. The counter that we came up with in Philosophy Club was like, you you can create a dependency. So like, I have a pretty crack up example here. Like, I made a video for the chief medical officer for the state of New York, and he invited me for lunch in the Empire State Building. And the morning that I had the lunch with him, I went to the Harry Krishna Food Bank, mm-hmm. and I and I helped them, you know, feed the homeless. And then I told Lloyd that afternoon, I was like, you know, this kind of cool thing I did this morning. And he was like, oh, you know, because he's running the city on such a, you know, such a high level. It's like that those guys are keeping people on the streets. They're not helping the homeless because a homeless person goes to the food bank and they leave with a nice warm meal. Mm-hmm. And they're like, sweet, I'm prepared to face this, you know, this position I'm in. Whereas Lloyd was like, we need to give those people the power to look after themselves. So it's kind of, it's a real tricky one. I'm so on board with what you're saying. And I, and I, and I want to do that too, but I guess it's case by case, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I didn't expect you to say that we're given, how do you do the metric on that? Like, uh, are they just coming to you going, we've kind of got a, an idea or we've yeah. got a few sales. So we or- interview these kids and they have ideas and, and they, they, they talk us through their pitch and, we help them. We help them through that pitch and ask them why they want to do it. Teach them how to create models and understand business economics, like what they should be selling it for. How to establish a supply chain. Do all these things, and at the end, you know, we we give them a grant to go out and spend advertising, start driving their customers. Right. So it, you know, it's interesting. So my your your point about the dependency point is is certainly a highly debatable topic. We could we could do on another podcast. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the the, the there's different. There's different aspects of that. So you're talking when you're talking about basic human needs, like being able to eat and stuff like that. There's a certain, you know, certainly a debate on like, you know, and I can speak for myself as a kid growing up homeless at times, you know, when you get that one more meal, 
you're you're not feeling super content. You're worried about your next warm meal. But the other side of that is, you know, where where we could create opportunity and actually create optimism um, in 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 a world that can suppress and otherwise hold down, you know, certain types of people or, or that aren't presented with the same opportunities. Like that's one thing that we're looking to 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 try to change, and that's why like these young entrepreneurs. They're not coming from rich families that, you know, kid graduates college, he gets $200,000 grants, doesn't have to worry about paying cutback college loans, and they have a huge leg ahead. What we're trying to do is just trying to help them kickstart and recognize that, like, you're not, you're not going to build a business off of grants and donations forever. But at the same time, it takes money to build a business. So creating enterprise and creating, like, hopefully the jobs that then they create after that, like, that's an awesome outcome. If we could get one of these entrepreneurs to actually have a business that sticks, and then they hire 10 people and maybe they're looking at their past and be like, I'm going to give opportunities to 10 people that otherwise wouldn't have it because I didn't have it. Like that's the ripple effect we're hoping to create. That's not a dependency in, in our opinion. That's just like creating opportunity through social enterprise. Oh yeah. I wouldn't say that your case is, is, is a dependency. It was more the, uh, the food bank thing. Yeah. Um, so no, like that, what you're doing there is, is pretty admirable. And, and so like, then you start looking at like, you know, things like heal the Bay, you know, there's just trash on the beach. Mm. that doesn't need to end up in our oceans and, and, and like filling up 20 or hundred trash bags makes a minuscule impact, but it does make a positive impact. It makes, it makes the beach a better place. And that's not the beach isn't, isn't dependent on it. It, it. Like a lot of social enterprise is cleaning up after ourselves collectively. Let's be honest. Yeah. So yeah, like, yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, that, well, that's kind of another interesting point is like, why is there plastic on the beach? Right. Totally. You know, right. Like we should just ban that. Yeah. Why is there that stupid, I don't remember what it's called, but like literal, uh, like island of trash in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Pacific where Ocean, only, yeah. Yeah. It's we're, here, actually. Oh, yeah. Awesome, right? It's like the size <laughs> yeah, of Texas. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. cool. Like, that, that sounds like a really fun thing to have out there. So, you know, to me, it's just like the social enterprise and having an impact. There's various degrees of that, but I look at it as if you have, if you, if you're a company that, like, if you're a small company, yeah, it's a little harder to have that. But one thing, oh, one last thing we do here at Stealth that I'm going to plug that that is that sort of shows how social impact can happen. We give all of our team members here a day off a month if they want to just participate in their community and just share what they did. So some nice. you know some people go to the dog sh- you know the animal shelters and take care of the pets for the day. Some people mentor kids or uh, you know volunteer at their kids' school and like we just want like that is. That's that's a great way for a company to give to have a social impact is just to say, hey, we also let our team take 12 days off a year, one day off a month to just do something in their own community and have a, a community impact. And whatever that is, it could be serving at a, at a soup kitchen. It could be taking care of animals. It could be cleaning up trash like all mm. that. Like that's a great way for a business to create a social impact that that's not even huge. And they they probably don't miss it. Right. Like one extra day off. is like a sick day. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. so that, that's what we try to encourage. And like, again, they don't always have to be public, but being able to talk about that, you talk about getting quality candidates, talk about getting quality people that work there that will then um, we could get really deep into like, not just what you put out as a brand, but what you have going on inside a company is a company and, and capitalism is a thing and for profit enterprises, what all these companies are. But then you start attracting people that love the passion that you have as a company. And most brands have so many brands, I should say, have social causes that aren't even on their website, right? They just believe no, in it. I, I, I am strongly into that. Yeah, anyway, I think that's so, that's kind of the nug. Cool stuff. 
<laughs> we so should have gotten to the philosophy earlier. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you guys need a podcast host or a filmmaker? Yeah, all the time. There we go. Yeah. Send you, I'll send you I'll send you a water bottle, get you one of these, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Squared away. No, that's really good to hear. I um I think that's beautiful. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing those points. Yeah, I kind of I also want to just keep going, but uh yeah, I'm worried, <laughs> I'm worried of the time. Oh good, man. This, this is a great conversation. I appreciate it. And uh wrapping up, yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Anytime you have me back, we can go deeper into this and all sorts of fun changes in advertising. Yeah, let's hit it. Let's hit it running uh, next time at the, at the beginning. Awesome. Where can people reach you, Evan? And yeah, thanks so much. That was an awesome conversation. Really was. Awesome. Um, yeah, so stealthventurelabs.com, our website. We got a form there. It doesn't all go to me. You can reach me at Evan, E-V-A-N, at stealthventurelabs.com. Find me on LinkedIn. Uh, always love talking about the industry and anything going on, anything interesting from this. Just connecting with people is always fun. So anyone in Northern Colorado, if that were to happen, Hit me up. I'm, I'm in Fort Collins, Colorado. Grab a beer and, and talk more about social enterprise. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to be in Massachusetts in four weeks, but it's a little yeah. far. It's a bit of a haul, a bit, but bit of a bit of a drive. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, if anybody wants to get uh, your email, it'll be in the show notes. And yeah, just honestly, thanks so much, Evan. That was. I think my boss is going to kill me for tracking uh, five hours to prepare for this. Um, I didn't need to. <laughs> that, was, that was a complete breeze. Awesome. Well, it was a good time, man. I love talking about this stuff. And thanks again for having me. Hey, no worries. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Debutify Podcast. If you want to be part of the show, just email us podcast at debutify.com or head over to debutify.com to learn more. Have a great day and good luck with everything.